Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the news out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SubChina Access. Or check out SubChina.com for all the original reported stories, op-eds, great regular columns, and our growing range of videos and podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from Nashville, Tennessee, is the star of films like The Man with the Golden Corn, Gold Corn Finger, and of course, Gold Corn Eye, Mr. Ziyumi, <laughs> a.k.a. Jeremy Goldcorn, and the man to bet on to make his grand return and be the next Bond in the franchise after Daniel Craig finally hangs up his hat. Jeremy, greet Thanks. the people. The hi, people. They're not actually going to make another Bond film because they're going to delay. I think they delayed this one uh, that was supposed to come out a year ago until the end of the pandemic. So that's going to be in 2027. I'll be too I'm old. guessing this is your fault. <laughs> you were just like holding out for more money. Is that what that's it was? That's right. That's right. You and your filthy love of lucre. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Uh, around 1230, in the, uh, to get very serious now. Around 12.30 in the early afternoon of February 6th, I picked up my phone, as I've done most mornings the last couple of weeks, and started scrolling through rooms on that app that by now everybody has heard about, Clubhouse. Uh, for a couple of days, we'd been hearing about the influx of many Chinese users, and I'd seen some remarkable rooms, you know, about Taiwan and cross-straits relations, about Hong Kong, and about all sorts of other China-related issues of the sort that Jeremy and I, presumably listeners to our show, also tend to really, you know, care a lot about. And then... I saw a room entitled Xinjiang Yogajijongying with a question mark at the end. And that literally means, for those of you who don't speak Chinese, does Xinjiang have a concentration camp? At first, I was kind of puzzled, thinking surely the, the tone would be defensive or denialist, even because, you know, the reference to a singular rather than a plural number of camps and all that. I, I was sure that on entering, I would be treated to the same kind of a, a, a raucous brawl that I've seen break out all too often on my own Facebook page or on Twitter. But instead, it was something completely different. It was indeed. And Kaiser, you texted me around the time and I jumped on and then managed to listen in at various times over the next 10 hours or so, I think. As you say, or uh, as Monty Python might say, it was something completely different. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. It was uh, civil. It was well-moderated. It gave voice to many Uyghur and, and some Kazakh people, uh, many of if not most, I think, had close family who had been sent to the so-called re-education camps. Uh, in the six hours that I spent listening to it really closely, it featured soul-searching comments and, and, and questions from many, many Han Chinese people as well, people who, who, who talked about their instinctive defensiveness, uh, indeed their, their readiness to, to take offense whenever somebody would bring up uh, the, the concentration camps in Xinjiang. People uh, talked about the guilt that they felt, about about shame, about uh, privilege, in, including a great word, hand-splaining, <laughs> like mansplaining, but han. Uh, and in, in a time, I think, you know, when a lot of us are lamenting the way that social media just hives us off into these separate tribal little bubbles, we saw like this rare moment when an online space uh, seems actually to have brought people together. It created, you know, a forum for, for candid and productive exchange. Uh, in me, at least, it briefly rekindled the kind of optimism about, you know, the Internet that we felt in an earlier and more innocent age. And I suppose that's why the swift blocking of Clubhouse, uh, which we all learned about on Monday morning, 
was, um, you know, despite all its inevitability, somehow really tragic all the same. Uh, there were, I think, you know, there were people who jumped in with efforts to justify the policy, who talked about terrorism and the other evils of separatism and religious extremism as if, you know, they were a given uh, and that they were, you know, real actual pressing problems. But it was clear that the room was against them. Uh, more extreme denialists and, and the people who were really disruptive got quickly removed. And, you know, okay, less obnoxious defenders were given fair time to speak. But they were clearly in the minority, and their interventions were, were met with a lot of groans of disapproval. Uh, but what I thought was really remarkable, Jeremy, was that beyond the emotional candor of, of many Han Chinese people you know, about their own instinctive resistance to accepting these you know, ugly realities, uh, there was this tactical decision that seemed to emerge that, that to avoid gratuitous attacks on China or against the CCP or the Han ethnicity. Uh, it wasn't made explicit. But I could almost sense that there was like this instinctive collective agreement not to do that. So today we are going to discuss this last remarkable weekend on the frontiers of the audio Internet. And in particular, the Chinese language group does Xinjiang have a concentration camp. Um, usually we introduce our guests, uh, but as per the newly forming manners of Clubhouse, which is a big part of our subject, obviously, we'll change things up a bit and ask our guests if you could, each of you all, introduce yourselves briefly. Uh, Rehan Asad, please introduce yourself and welcome to Seneca. Thank you for having me, Jamie and Kaiser. I'm an attorney and at the moment, I serve as the president of the American Turkic Bar Association, and I'm also a senior fellow at the Roald Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. I specialize in anti-corruption, business, and human rights, and my, my work so far has been focused on democratic leadership, labor rights, human rights as core elements of foreign policy and the relationship between emerging technologies and human freedom. It was uh, just great to have you as one of the speakers uh, telling your own stories. And uh, in a bit, we'll ask you to talk about that. Um, but first, I want to introduce L or have him introduce himself. L, we're only going to be using the first initial. He is uh, a, a, well, I'll let him tell you. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, because he was one of the, he was really the person who started the room. Uh, thank you, Kaiser. Uh, I'm L, and I'm an independent filmmaker based in Los Angeles. I'm a Han Chinese person uh, born and raised in Wuhan. Uh, I've actually never been to Xinjiang myself. I also didn't really have many, you know, Uyghur friends. I guess this might sound like a stereotype. I love lamb kebabs, and I used to go to a lot of, you know, Uyghur restaurants to eat. I'm just an ordinary Chinese Han Chinese person who's interested uh, to learn more about Xinjiang. Thank you, El. And Mui, I suspect you are known to many of our listeners, but please introduce yourself all the same. Hi, thank you, Jeremy and Kaiser. Um, I'm Mu Yi Xiao. Uh, I'm a journalist at the New York Times uh, Visual Investigations Unit. Uh, I'm also uh, raised and uh, grown up in uh, Wuhan. So we are hometown people here. I just found a new hometown folks here. <laughs> so um, I've been covering China. I'm a journalist covering China, uh, basically start the beginning of my career. Um, right now I'm in the New York Times. Previously, I worked for China File. Uh, which is a publication that actually syndicate uh, the Seneca podcast. And previously, uh, and before that, I was in China uh, working for Tencent and Reuters, also just being uh, either a follow journalist or follow editor. So on, um, on Sunday, I, was, I also 
saw just saw this notification that uh, this room um, was started and definitely got attracted by the uh, name of the room and I entered and started this um, new life experience um, yeah at that moment. <laughs> Yeah, it was a new life experience. I think it was a th new thing for forever. Let's let's start with L. First of all, L. Rehan Mui, welcome to Seneca. It's just so great to have you all three of you here, uh, and I'm really thrilled to be able to talk about this historical moment. Uh, L, since you're the person who started the room uh, with a couple of your friends, it really makes sense to start with you. Give us the backstory here. How did you decide to start a public room on this topic? You know, what thought went into the name of it, which I thought was sort of unusual. And, and, and what did you anticipate was going to happen once you opened it up to the clubhouse public? Sure. So I started the room on Saturday morning uh, when I woke up. I was actually in bed when I started the room. I had a friend who uh, who's based in Beijing. Uh, he just got on Clubhouse. I also had another friend who's based in DC. Uh, he was, you know, also new to Clubhouse. None of them have ever been into a room before. So I kind of, you know, just asked my friend in Beijing because, you know, we were uh, roommates in college. I just he also uh, he works in media. Actually, he works for state media, which I will not name here. You know, we kind of just. I asked him, you know, do you guys want to talk on Clubhouse and maybe open, you know, join the room? He said, fine. So I asked him, you know, how about we talk about the internment camps? Because I just saw the video from BBC about uh, Uyghur women uh, in the internment camps were, were raped. Also, I guess part of it was almost like challenging him, like, dare you, you know, join a room like this? Because, right, because he works in the system. He, he said, sure, why not? Wow. And then, you know, my friend in D.C., he's also an interesting person because he is Republican and a Trump supporter. And then myself, I'm more, you know, liberal. On, and then I have my friend who works for, you know, a mainstream media in China. So I thought maybe we would have an interesting conversation because I'm more on the on the left. I'm uh, very liberal. So we decided to start a room together. And the room started as a private room. You know, it was just the three of us chatting with each other, you know, introducing uh, my, my two friends to each other. Uh, then we just decided to open it up and see how it goes. Uh, it was uh, actually my second room. I had started a room before that, but only like 20, 30 people joined. So I did not know this room was going to blow up in an hour and attract thousands of people. So, you know, when we opened it up, we started chatting and then we have other people joining. Uh, and at the beginning, it was mostly other Han Chinese people who were already following us, you know, joining the room. And they were like, oh, there's a, there's internment camp in Xinjiang. I never heard of that. I didn't know. And then there were other people who were like, is that true? Is that real? You know, people joined the room. They were kind of answering that question. Uh, you know, sharing their views at the beginning. But very, very soon, we got, you know, I think uh, a gentleman uh, called Vincent who joined the room. He's half Uyghur and half uh, Kazakhstan. And he told us, you know, more stories about what's really going on. And then after he joined, a few other uh, Uyghur friends joined as well. And then people started sharing uh, their own stories. And then, you know, then the room kind of started to run itself. Uh, I was doing most of the moderation for the first two hours. But, you know, after that, I think, uh, Vincent and Mui did a lot of the, the moderation, and I did a little bit more in the afternoon, probably for another two hours after Mui left. But the room ran for about, I think, at least twelve hours. Uh, I was maybe moderating about four hours of the time, and then you know the other the other moderators did the rest. Well, that's amazing. I mean, so this must have completely surpassed your expectations of what was going to happen. Oh yeah, totally, totally. I did not expect this to to become what it was. 
And also, since you asked about the name,、uh, and you know, I know there are journalists who are critical of the name because it kind of, you know, suggests that you know maybe there's a possibility there's no internment camps in Xinjiang. And to be honest, I you know I have to say,、um, I guess I set up the room with a question, so it kind of serves as a、uh, icebreaker for people who join the room, right? Because when they join the room, they can express their opinions. Because if I set up the the the,、uh, the name of the of the room as a statement, then usually you know people don't know what to say when they join. So I guess that's one reason I set it up that way. The other is I also think because、uh, you know when I before I started the room, I thought maybe there will be people who have different opinions who will join and kind of discuss it.、Uh, I did not expect to have actually you know Uyghur people who would join and share their own stories. So when I set up the room, I had an audience who are mostly Han Chinese in mind. So you know that's why I asked. That question, because for a lot of Han Chinese people, they actually also do not know, like, is there internment camps in China or not? They might have read it in the news, but they may not believe it. So that's why I, why I decided on the name. Right. I I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but um, you know, earlier you said that your your knowledge of Xinjiang, well, since you've never been there, you know, the food and you like the food, uh, but you hadn't really followed the issue all that closely, apparently, and, and you know, so I'm I'm curious what you knew going and what did you believe. About what's happening in Xinjiang, going into this room. Sure. So before I go into the room,、uh, I do think there are internment camps in Xinjiang. I've read read it in the news. You know, I've been actually actually following it for a while. But most of most of the Han Chinese people that I know around me do not believe right, it, ex- right. it exists, or they're not aware of it. And I've tried to talk to my own friends about it before, and usually Han Chinese friends. And whenever I talk to them. They deny, you know, the existence, or they're just not interested in this topic. You know, they wouldn't want to talk about it.、Right. You know, so that's that's what I feel. And、uh, I I actually do like lamb kebab kebabs a lot. And I so I've been to Uyghur restaurants in the U.S. where、uh, the owners would play music videos from East Turkestan.、Um, you know, in a very low key way because I obviously I guess they didn't want to lose their Han Chinese customers. But you know, I could tell. You know, they are kind of in exile. So you know, mm-hmm. but that's pretty much all I know. You know, I've never actually met anyone who knows somebody who were in the camps. But there's another actually story that I wanted to share, which is so two years ago when when I was、uh, head of a department at a company,、uh, I had an intern who was、uh, Hui Muslim.、Mm-hmm. Uh, since she didn't eat pork, you know, we would actually go to Uyghur restaurants for lunch together. And then you know, on the way to the restaurant and back, I would actually ask her thoughts about you know the the Xinjiang、uh, situation, you know, and she did, didn't know either. And then so I shared articles from the news, you know, with her, you know, telling her there are, they are building internment camps there,、uh, you know. There's also I guess、um, mosques being torn down,、um, but you know she still does not. You know,、um, sympathize, and she would tell me that the Hui Muslim are different from the Uyghur Muslim, and you know the Hui Muslim, you know, abide by the rules. The Uyghur Muslim, you know, they need to be put in the camps, and it's you know for terrorism. So, you know, those conversations were kind of shocking to me, and you know, and over the years, I was never able to convince anybody who had a different opinion from mine that there are camps、uh, in Xinjiang. Thanks, thanks for your candor about this, Al. Rayhan, since not everyone had a chance to listen to the actual room and to hear you share your story there, 
maybe you could you could recount your own story here for for our Seneca audience and and share some of your impressions about how you sensed people were responding in that clubhouse room to you and to some of the other Uyghur people who who did you know share their own stories their own perspectives and and what had happened to their family members yeah definitely in fact i was in a room previous night and it also talked about xinjiang and the camp situation but the traction didn't get what it was on on that weekend the saturday hmm. so i i had a bit of mixed feelings but then when I saw the name, as you suggested, there was a question mark. So I walked in, it's like expecting that perhaps people would question the existence of the camps and so forth. But then I guess somebody recognized me and, and they're like, oh, Rehan is here. Let's bring her up to talk. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think I became a sort of popular person over the clubhouse, like in the past few days and just like how for various reasons, just end up having like massive followers. So before me, obviously people heard like other stories of Uyghurs talking about their own very incredibly painful experience of having family members being taken away to these camps or somebody just simply losing contact with their friends. And, you know, it's uh, the room. I mean, it was welcoming in many sense. And I was assured, like, that kind of vibe. Just for some reason, I, I don't know. It was just, like, unspoken language in a way. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it was palpable, though. You could sense that it was empathetic, right? Yeah, exactly. But I started off by saying that, delighted to be here. And, and I saw, like, you tweeted about this, like, you know, Brene Brown said... Vulnerability is true courage. And so many stories that I think you've heard before, these people are incredibly courageous to share their story. But when it comes to Uyghurs, sharing their story doesn't only require courage, but also it comes with a cost. Mm. So I hope that you know, like when you hear the stories, I, f I hope you feel the honor of hearing these personal stories because they are taking tremendous risk of sharing them. And then I sort of moved on to my story and said, I'll tell you my story and what I will do <laughs> on this podcast. So I grew up in Xinjiang and, you know, I'm, I'm from Urumqi and I, I was born into a very educated family. Uh, my Both my parents, I think they met after the Cultural Revolution and got married sort of like later in their early 30s. And then, you know, they had me and my brother Ekber, who later become like a very successful tech entrepreneur. And my mom is a professor and my father, he worked for the Chinese government. So they're both party officials. Mm -hmm. um, so growing up in, in that kind of family and having the education in Wuhan, so which makes <laughs> me also like semi-Wuhanese. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think we were, we're having like a Wuhanese conversation today. Um, and then, you know, from there, I ended up going to Canada for um, graduate school. And then and it's interesting because when I when I left, both my professor and my parents, like the advice that I got was like, you know, uh, you are um, very good, good educated, you're a good kid, you know, you're well educated when you go there, don't engage in politics. 
so that has been sort of like a the defining um years of my graduate school years and as well as my life for a very long time and after Canada I got a job and I really wanted to embark on this journey of exploring my identity because I got confused like am I Uyghur am I somebody who's like closer to Chinese culture because I also felt very close to my Han friends like spending like four years in Wuhan and kind of like at that point I'm also western educated so it was really my journey seeking my own identity and I went to Turkey and I got a job but in between I organized a conference the very first Turkey China conference and the reason for that was you know I've been always this bridge builder and I think that's who my family is like everybody in my family that they've been sort of like a bridge builder and they get along with everybody it doesn't matter whether you're government officials or a farmer from the southern Xinjiang um, so and previously I had a I was a speaker at China and Canada conference and that gave me this idea of like hosting and in fact organizing this uh, Turkey China conference and I brought the 17 lawyers and professors from China to come to Turkey and I, I hosted this event like a wonderful three days conference where the deputy prime minister of Turkey was a keynote speaker so was the general council of China in Istanbul so the event was absolutely successful and my brother as I said he's a tech entrepreneur so he mm -hmm. also has a media platform he shared the event and just like taking tremendous pride in me being this bridge builder between like Turkey and China. And then, you know, after f spending a few years in Turkey, I came back to North America because, you know, I, I felt like I'm, I feel at that point very westernized. Um, and I went to Harvard and I had no idea, like my life was about to change. And, uh, and there comes 2016 and at this point my brother became just wildly successful and also just like you know he despite how successful he has become he always remained compassionate to others and committed to his philanthropy so he does a lot of charity work with kids with disabilities mm. but also I, you know he's he's I, I saw like some of his interviews like where the Chinese government was He's very revered by both the Uyghur community and the Chinese government, too, for being that bridge builder. That's what they use. They said he's a positive force in the tech world and a bright star. And those are the words of the Chinese government in uh, Yashin. Uh, it's, a, it's a media outlet um, that they promoted him. Um, and, and, you know, he was just like in such good grace of China and even like attended this state gala dinner in 2016 New Year's wow. but then and I think somebody this is somebody I think Kaiser you know um, Max Bacchus is sure. a former ambassador uh, to uh, China a US ambassador so he met my brother because he's like oh this guy is like incredibly um, successful and I think he met a few entrepreneurs Uyghur entrepreneurs and he specifically handpicked my brother to come to a program that's sponsored by the U.S. Embassy and State Department so he came to the U.S. as a part of a China cohort or delegation if you will to attend this like a leadership program for three weeks and I had the pleasure of meeting him in Washington D.C. and a very 
briefly in New York. And it was like a very bittersweet trip that I never thought that I was about to change the course of his life. Because right after he returned from that trip in mid-March 2016, on April 7th, he was detained by the Chinese government. And then he's been thrown into these camps. God. And initially, I I was just very much scared. Like, you know, and, and in part, you know, as I sort of said earlier, like my parents told me not to engage in politics and I've never done. In fact, if anything, I served and advanced China's interests by promoting China and whatever country where I was, you know, um, and then so so was my brother. And and initially, I think, you know, there was a lot of confidence in me that maybe he just came back from the U.S. so they would investigate him. Like, you know, these things you hear right. that does happen in China, right? So, but half year has passed, like a year has, and I'm like, what is going on? And at that point, I heard about these camps being built up. But, um, you know, I, I do say that I deeply regret for not speaking out sooner. It took me three years and eight months to finally make that decision. And despite me being an attorney, and that's the part that hurts me the most. Like, I'm a powerful attorney. I have everything, resources, tools at my disposal. Why I was so scared? And I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's um, the Chinese government obviously has a lot of power over you. And despite the fact that, you know, you left for so long and also did all the right things and being and conform to their version of the what model citizens like. So finally, I think that last year in May, um, Edward Wong in the New York Times shared my brother's story. Yeah, and I remember that. There was a powerful line, I think two lines that I, I and I think that's how I will end. I said, I think as a Uyghur, no matter what we do, I think the Chinese government would always see Uyghurs as outliers. That's how I think I was quoted. And the last line was that um, I said, you know, when you grow up, grow up in China, you're not supposed to engage in politics, but China is pushing me to engage in politics. So, and that's how I ended up sort of becoming a public advocate for my brother. And it started out truly out of this tremendous love and unconditional love for my brother. And, you know, I, I took, I don't know, what is it? Like, I've always believed that if there's an opportunity, that if any Chinese person hears the story, who my brother is and who I am, because I have a track record that supports that, you know, our family has been doing everything right. Of course, they're going to be on my side. And having been like presented this opportunity, I felt like it's almost like, you know, this is, um, you know, there's like this wonderful people who are there and it's my opportunity, golden opportunity to engage and share my story. But obviously there was a lot of fear. But uh, it was the room that helped me to just like dispel the hesitation and just share and be vulnerable. Let's talk about the room a little bit. I, I think, you know, especially because for anyone who joined, I think that there was a, a liberating feeling of 
fear evaporating from a corner of the internet. Um, but it, it, it didn't happen on its own. I think there was some very skilled moderation on, on the part of you all, I'm going to say, because there was a number of people. But um, Mui, you were one of um, several moderators. Uh, you have a lot of media experience, you know, ranging from the New York Times to uh, the Chinese Storytellers Collective. Um, was it a struggle to keep it so civilized? And what I thought was done very well was you kept the discussion civilized without in any way minimizing the nature of the human rights abuses you were discussing, which is always the danger when talking about China is that everybody wants to kind of candy coat it and talk around the edges. And you didn't do that, but it remained civilized. How, how did that work? Um, I think it's not all, you know, moderators work. Um, you know, th those people who chose to speak, they are the one who decided to be civilized. Um, I mean, as moderators and uh, Louis you, and Louis and Rehan, you can jump in because I think you both also did a lot of those work. Um, but for me, I think it was kind of like a, the most important thing is to set up the rules um, and make sure that people take orders to speak so that you don't have a situation uh, after one person speaking and everyone just open their mic and then just like create this like very chaotic and uh, confronting dynamic. Uh, but if you basically just like tell people ahead of time, okay, we're going to just take turns. Like, and people who come to the speaker stage will speak first and will go one by one. Uh, and then people will just be more patiently waiting. So I think that kind of like laid the ground uh, for this more kind of quote unquote civilized um, dynamic. Um, yeah. Jeremy's absolutely right that you, you kept it civil without candy coating anything, you know, being able to talk about some very, very difficult issues, especially, you know, as a, a Chinese person. But, you know, I think at some level, we must all be aware of how unrepresentative that conversation was. I mean, I'm sure all of you, Jeremy included, we probably have, you know, any of us who have connections to China and who are sympathetic to the plight of, of the Uyghurs uh, have had the experience of trying to broach the subject of Xinjiang the camps with our friends, with our family, only to be met with flat-out denial or really mm -hmm. pretty chilling justifications or or whataboutism or, or even confident assertions that, you know, the Xinjiang camps narrative is all part of this plot by America and its allies to keep China down. Um, so I think we probably all know better than to conclude from what we witnessed on this weekend that all we needed to ever do was punch a hole in the Great Firewall and the scales would just fall from Chinese eyes and, you know, everything would be fine. I think it's 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 important to be clear on, you know, where, at least right now, the preponderance of Chinese public opinion still sits. Uh, but at the same time, I think the fact that the kind of people who are on Clubhouse, you know, and who are from China, by virtue of the fact that they are you know, these plugged in, really tech savvy, relatively cosmopolitan, relatively sophisticated people, they really do punch above their weight in terms of their influence, uh, you know, in China. So does this fact that they punch above their weight, does that trump the fact that they're such a minority, that they're really unrepresentative? I think so. I absolutely believe so. And, you know, yeah, great. I'm glad to hear. Um, it. Because at the end of today, like, People and and this is something that I've been advocating too. I said, you know, if you really want to help and want to be an ally, 
here's your chance. Tell our stories. Tell our stories to your family, to your friends. And you're right, Kaiser, because we did have a good representation of, um, you know, Han people. But I think most of them, at least, you know, from my observations, they seem to be educated overseas. And there are few that joined from mainland, like, uh, well, I, I would say like half and half. You, you, I definitely saw a lot of people joining from Shanghai. Right. right, like Beijing and big cities. Like obviously, it's not like a small city in Shandong. <laughs> so, exactly. right. So, well, I mean, we just have to remember that you know, Apple iPhone is only it has like eight percent market share, right? And it has to be you know an iOS yeah. device, and that eight percent is not distributed evenly across rural and urban. It's not distributed evenly, you know, uh, between white collar and and you know migrant workers, right? It's it's very much educated, wealthy. Coastal cities, first tier cities. Right? Exactly, and and be, and precisely because of that, imagine if one of the persons that participate in this discussion is a PhD student or graduate student in, uh, let's say Beijing University. How many people that person is going to inform? So I think that's right. what my hope, and I also like the thing, see things sort of like you know try to find that silver lining or try to look at it from a bright side. And yes, indeed, I mean, a lot of people said, well, like, you know, this is like a very elitist group. Um, but, you know, I think I'm happy that those people who are educated enough not to cause too much pain denying what's happening to me and other people, but rather at least trying to learn the truth and engage with us and when because they are open-minded that's why they were able to take away so much knowledge from that discussion and i hope they would spread the word fantastic yeah absolutely yes indeed i think for any topics if you are talking with someone who is like holding like a different opinion um from you it is always difficult to convince especially if you are talking about like such a sensitive topic and uh, people like there are already like very limited people like discussing, like knowing anything about it. And then there is this overwhelming fear to stop people from just engaging it and trying to uh, get into know more about the situation. So having this opportunity to allowing those people who have a certain level of knowledge, but not that much or like not sure what is going on to really hear like the stories like firsthand from Uyghurs, like what happened to them and their family has really has the power to make them believe uh, what they're hearing. Because when you are hearing their stories, also hear like how they feel, you know, like there are people crying yeah. and I cried several times while hearing those stories. It is different from you just read it from news. I cover Xinjiang as well. You know, I read documents all the time. I like look at the like satellite images, like read all pretty much all existing news, pub, like news uh, coverage on this topic. But that day I felt very different just hearing them talking about it. But like Rehan said, it is a privilege because it comes as a huge cost to them of them. Yes. And yeah, so, you know, like what's what we're going to do after now we have these stories. Yeah, I think a lot of people going to feel very different after that day. I, I remember very vividly that man 
is is from Beijing, I think, um, and he's not in Beijing at that time. But he was saying that okay, when he started like waiting the line to speak, he had another deep like a different opinion that is more on the denial or like questioning that side. But then when it was his turn to speak. He was just. He was saying that he was like sobbing in his car while he was driving. That was you know, amazing. During the time he was waiting yeah. in line, yeah, that was like, yeah. I'm sure many people in that room on that day felt the same. Um, L, can I ask you? In Kaiser's intro, he talked about what seemed to be almost a tactical decision to avoid demonizing the Han ethnicity, or you know, even the Communist Party and and Xi Jinping. Um, what was how much of a conscious decision was this? And can you share what went through your head? You know how how that that consensus seemed to emerge. Maybe Mui can also weigh in on this. Uh, sure. So uh, as I might have mentioned earlier, I work in Los Angeles as an independent filmmaker, and one thing you know I think people do in filmmaking is that、uh, it's called storytelling, and I think that's actually what happened in that room. Because when you are trying to argue with someone, you know you are throwing ideas at them, you are throwing numbers at them. They don't actually accept them. You scare them away. But when you tell them the story, a story, you draw them in, and then at the end, you know they might get something themselves. Then that you know that moral of the story will stick with them. So I think that's really the magic of this room, which is when people are being really vulnerable. That was very very powerful. They share their personal stories. You know the people who came in to argue with them heard the stories, and then you know their ideas or their views changed in that process. And in terms of you know how much of this was deliberate, I would say you know I started a room really very spontaneously. I didn't really think about the tactic. It kind of just happened in the room, and then I went with it. But there are a few things that I did do in the room because I was you know the first person、uh, to be the moderator. So one thing I did do. Is whenever I saw a Uyghur person joining the room who wanted to speak, you know, I make them also a moderator, because you know they are the ones who know what's you know appropriate,、uh, the best. You know, I'm I was not in a position to decide. Oh, who should I give more time to speak? Who who should I you know allow to the stage? And to be honest, there were a moment where it kind of got out of control when、yeah. there was someone joined the room who was like mocking you know Uyghur people, you know. With the same, I guess, lamb kebab thing that I'm, you know, I was talking about earlier, which was really offensive, you know. But at that at that point, all the other people, including other Han Chinese people who were on the stage, you know, turned on their mic and was saying, "Oh, you know, you cannot do that. That's not right. You know, stop. Don't do that." You know. Then I think after that, that became kind of, you know, there is this. I don't know the word, moci.、Uh, you know. I think after that moment, there is this. Kind of solidarity,、um, yeah, solidarity among everyone,、um, and it was not planned. It just kind of happened because everybody felt it,、um, and I think that was really, you know, what happened in the room, rather than anything planned or you know. And I actually don't think any anything planned could have done that.、Uh, it was just a very very beautiful moment and experience. The solidarity was part of it. I mean, the, and the empathy, the deliberate you know,、uh, privileging. Of first-person Uyghur stories, making all of the, the Uyghur people who joined the room moderators. That was great. But、um, um, Jeremy was asking about that decision not to alienate Han people, which I thought was really just very smart. You know, earlier we were talking,、uh, Al, and you made reference to how、uh, Tsai Xia, who's、uh, the the former. 
Dong Xiao professor, the party school professor, who has become quite a, a, an outspoken party critic, often talks about how there are people within within the system, you know, Tijerne people, who are or could be uh, sympathetic or empathetic to, you know, the, the people who have been on the receiving end of repression and uh, the importance of reaching those people on the inside. Um, you did a really good job, I think, uh, of, 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 you know, keeping that spirit. I, I agree. Um, I, I think, and, you know, kudos to him. Um, I'll even, you know, I think there was times because there's so many people waiting uh, in the back room. They want to speak, right? Like they want to participate in the discussion. And I think Al made sure, like, you know, this is a discussion about Xinjiang. So let's give the platform to the Uyghur people who are directly impacted by this. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in addition to uh, the, some of the Uyghur moderators, obviously there was Lewis and I believe there were a few other Han moderators too. But at the same time, I appreciate that so many p- people would raise their hands because they want to take part in the discussion. And and speaking of solidarity, at one point, somebody, I think, started off by saying the government's narrative and like, oh, this is about like counterterrorism. And as an attorney and somebody who is a big proponent of free speech, I, I just like sat there. I wanted him to finish. But then before the Uyghur moderators taking any action, like so many other like Han friends in that room, they they were like, "Oh my gosh, like I I can't stand this." <laughs> so um, I remember that. that was, that I was thought a that was moment. that's yeah. a great moment, and you know, and I do say that like um, I'm not so sure if, and perhaps because it's not Louis that's sharing personal story, I've received so many heartfelt messages on my Twitter inbox from people who heard my story. And, you know, it ranges from a short, uh, a paragraph message to almost like, you know, a letter to me. Wow. And, you know, honestly, and I was like, I was literally joking to myself, like if I were ever to write a book, like, and I really appreciate that they trusted me, that I would keep their identity confidential. And I appreciate that and absolutely would. But uh, for me, I think that gave me so much strength and something that I very much needed in these days because when you're constantly out there advocating and not seeing the result it is moments like this the humanity and this shared experience that we had the solidarity we felt like all of this would become my source of energy so um and if anybody listening those people who joined uh, and especially who reached out to me Thank you so much. I think that the past few days, you made me feel something that I've always believed possible. A a China that could be. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for everybody's humanity. It it was uh, truly extraordinary and and moving. Um, 
But, you know, sadly, as something relatively accessible from China, the platform that this wonderful conversation happened on Clubhouse wasn't going to be long for this world. Uh, and, of course, as many people expected would be, it was shut down very quickly after the conversation we're talking about. Um, but do you think that there is a potential for this type of conversation, whether on Clubhouse itself or elsewhere, and possibly on this medium of voice, because it seems intimate in a way that other, uh, you know, interactive and social media aren't. But is there a possibility right. that this kind of con conversation is going to continue? Uh, that more uh, less connected, less internationally connected Han Chinese might start being a part of this conversation. And that's a question for all, all three of you. Um. Actually, can I address Kaiser's last question a little bit more uh, sure. about you know the people within the system? Sure, um, absolutely. I've thought about this a lot, and you know, after hearing what Cai Xia have said, I do think you know there are a lot of people who work within the communist uh, party system who are actually you know good people. I think, but the reason why people did not pay attention or did not care about the Uyghur issues, you know, there are several reasons and. I kind of came up with my own theory in the past few days. I was thinking, how come some people could change, could have that kind of post-traumatic growth in that experience in the room? And you know, this is what I think are the three factors that's important for someone to be able to change their perspective, which are, number one, they need to be smart and intelligent. Number two, they need to have empathy and be empathetic. And number three, they need to be educated or informed. So I guess when I say uh, intelligence was smart, I mean they need to have some kind of critical thinking skills. So you know, I think when, when if you have all three um, of these factors, you are able to change. But most people in China either, you know, they were not informed, they didn't really know about these stories, or they did not have the critical thinking skills. So maybe even th though they know the stories, they really couldn't, you know, be able to come up with that idea on their own. Or you know some people who are might be very informed and very smart, but then they don't have the empathy to actually care, um, you know, about others. So you actually need all these three to actually to be able to create something, or to be able to change your perspective. So I think in this room, what did happen is that there is this environment where people could have both. Uh, they can get informed. You know, they can also start to think critically. And they feel the empathy from other people. They started to, you know, to have to feel that themselves. And I think that's the kind of the magic that made so many people kind of go through a transformative experience in this room. And also, what I thought, you know, was very valuable. In so maybe uh, Al, I can repeat the question then and say, you know, whatever made that magic is that something that might be continued uh, on Clubhouse or beyond. Um, I think that's something that can be continued. And to be honest, after that room about Xinjiang internment camps, the next day, which is Sunday, there were multiple rooms that showed up that were talking about issues that weren't talked about on Clubhouse before. For instance, there was one room talking about the June Fourth Tiananmen Square incident. You know, nobody dared to create a room like that. But because of the the, the Uyghur, you know, room that we had, I think people were so brave they started. To create other rooms, and then there are people who experienced the incident that joined the room and shared their personal stories from 30 years ago. Then there's also another room that was talking about, you know, the experience of drinking tea with the, you know, National Security Bureau. And again, that's a very, very sensitive topic. But 
So many people joined. They were honest about their fear, but they were still willing to share their fear. And I think that's the you know a good step to conquer that fear. So I, and also interestingly,、uh, yesterday, which is Monday, there is another clubhouse room talking. Kind of actually, it's called the Hu Xijing Fan Club. <laughs> yeah, the room. I was in that one. Yeah, and it was mocking Hu Xijing. You know, so people、funny. now are starting. They are so brave. They are so creative. They are having fun with it. They they are, they, are, they don't feel fearful anymore.、Yeah. You know, all this transformation happened within the last three days, and I feel today, you know, there might be a, even another room that pushes the boundary even further.、Um, that's what I'm. I'm actually expecting to see something really interesting happening tonight. I don't know what it's going to be.、Uh, there was also, yeah, there was also another room which I didn't see on my wall, but I heard from other people that was kind of moaning the, you know, the passionate way of Dr. Li Wenliang,、uh, also on Sunday because it was the one-year anniversary、right. and people were just, you know, all in the room, not talking. You know, it was all silent. So there were all these creative rooms that started after, you know, what happened on Saturday, and I think. There, this might be able to continue, but of course, you know. Then there's the, I guess, the Great Firewall, and now the app is no longer available in China. But still, among the overseas community and among the Chinese tech-savvy community who uses VPN to, you know, to climb the firewall, I think this can still continue. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So. I I don't you know I don't I don't think there、uh, has been any reporting on like how many users in China、uh, have access to this app and then you know after the app is shut down how many user、uh, kind of stayed but just from my own、uh, observation my friends、uh, who are、uh, based in China、uh, are not really impacted by the shutdown so I don't know and maybe like the theory is that. Because of the initial batch of users from China already, like El said, is tax savvy people. You know, from the tax circle, media circle, maybe they even the app is shut down. They still could find a way to navigate that. But you know, it's still a big shame that there won't be any more user new users from China joining this platform. It is、uh, been quite remarkable. It's kind of almost the opposite of the usual scene in in media and internet circles because I found that on Clubhouse. The the Chinese language rooms and and to an extent the English rooms talking about China are you know very political, whereas the mainstream clubhouse kind of American culture seems to be this rather vanilla venture capitalist kind of uh, <laughs> uh, environment where people are you know hesitant to speak、sure. about politics. <laughs> It's just insufferable. <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I joined the clubhouse actually last year. Uh, and I didn't use it that much at all. Like I was because you know, like you said,、uh, those rooms were mostly those hustlers, you know, trying to network, <laughs> and it's just I don't know. I just、so、don't、boring. find very interesting.、Yeah. And I use it, yeah, yeah. And then I started to get immediately addicted once、um, the Chinese speaking users joined. The oh、platform. my god, I am so hopelessly addicted. <laughs> my boss is going to kill me because I'm so behind in work right now.、But. All of、uh, us. Let me let me preface this next question <laughs>、um, with a warning to anyone listening who might want to skip forward because I'll be bringing up the topic of rape, sexual violence in the context of the camp. So,、uh, something that I think a lot of people understandably find very very hard to listen to. So please skip forward until about the fifty four minutes thirty seconds mark、uh, to get past this, and I'll give you a few seconds here to do that if you want. Okay, so. 
the topic of sexual violence actually didn't come up too much, at least not while I was listening and live tweeting the room, even though the room was started only just a couple of days after a major BBC piece featured Uyghur women talking about not only incidents of rape and torture, uh, but systematic sexual violence. Uh, There were a few oblique references to it, but can you talk about why you think it was a topic that was mostly avoided? I personally think in part it's because the Uyghurs themselves sharing personal stories of having family members take being taken away to these camps. So I don't think it ever got to that point. But hmm. the later on in other rooms, it did get talked about. And I remember one um, one girl and she she's Han and she said that was the final straw for her. She thought that at this point, if she still remains silent, oh, actually, it was interesting because before her, I talked about the room called VP uh, Clubhouse is shut down. What now? So a lot of people talked about we're still going to use VPN to, to get engaged with the Uyghur community or Hong Kongers or Taiwanese, and we'll, we'll keep learning. And in that room, that's the girl talked about and that's my impression and it, it, she said like it was you know obviously bbc um, some people talked about like you know western media being biased and so forth and she said bbc is like very neutral and i believe these journalists what they're saying like they wouldn't put it out something uh that that they investigate themselves so i thought that was a uh, that was powerful but it's something that people didn't discuss because they have already so much trauma and their personal stories to share. So I also wanted to share a little bit on that topic. Mm -hmm. Um, The reason why I started the room, or I guess, you know, what kind of made me think about this was actually the BBC video that came out uh, two days ago. Right, you mentioned that at the beginning. That's, that's, yeah, which is interesting why then it didn't go on to become a central theme in the actual discussion. Yep. But what happened in the room is when people started to share their stories, those were very, very personal and vulnerable. And for me, you know, being a Han Chinese man, which is the, you know, the privileged majority uh, in China, I didn't feel that I was in a position to, you know, hurt them again by asking them really personal questions or, you know, make them share more. So that's why I didn't bring up this question. And I thought, you know, we should let the Uyghur victims share the stage and let them decide when it's appropriate to bring it up. That's that's fantastically, you know, that was the right thing to do. That was handled extraordinarily well. And kudos for that. Thank you. Could I ask the three of you, what were the most memorable things you heard in that room? I think I already said, I think definitely was... Um, the guy in the car. I mean... Yeah, the guy in the car, but I mean, I cried so many times, just, oh, dude, I was crying just like the whole, I don't know, five hours. Um, so there was many memorable moments, but that was the story that made me believe that people, um, people's mind can change. Yeah, yeah. What about you, uh, Rehan, for you, the most memorable thing? I think for me, um, when, like somebody after listening to a very powerful and personal individual story of an Uyghur uh, person 
sharing the pain of their loved ones missing, causing them, you know, after like we would allow a a Han person to join in the conversation. And some people, you know, they would start speaking, but they couldn't even hold themselves together. Hmm. Yeah. Because the pain. A lot of very raw emotion. Right? Like the pain. And this is, we're not talking about like us being in the same space physically. It's virtually. And yet, because of the the voices and and everything, like, you know, people can, nobody is going to, make up some fabricated fact that their mother or brother is missing. Nobody would do that. And and they can feel it. Um, so I thought that was really powerful that, I mean, they couldn't stand it anymore. They're like, this is absolutely horrendous injustice and it meets every level of condemnation that we had to lend it to, to, to the Uyghur people. And the other thing for me was, in that moment of, and this is something that I talk about, like sometimes like I, I struggle. I'm already going through so much and somebody denying that I'm making up the fact that my brother gone missing, that I, we haven't heard a word from him for almost four years and nine months. Oh, God. Right? Like, and when people do that, I think that's so despicable. But uh, I really appreciate it without me even re-explaining this pain and reliving it again. Another Han person coming to my defense and say like, okay, please don't start over there. So I thought that was that. And for me, like that's the solidarity because you understood my pain to be my advocate, basically. So I'm not alone in this. And, and that's us joining forces. So for me, I think that that was uh, quite powerful and emotional to know that, you know, if everything is removed, our politics, disinformation, at the end of the day, I think we're all human beings. It doesn't matter whether you're Han, Uyghur, Hong Kongers, yeah, right yeah. like when you see the pain you, you you're just there you want to be an ally but for any of this to ultimately matter for it to make a difference in what beijing ends up doing i guess we have to believe that public opinion has some effect right mm-hmm. i mean i i think a lot of americans though are now conditioned into believing that public opinion in china doesn't matter not a whit to the leadership in beijing i i actually disagree Me too. I, I th- i'd say that you know the reality, great. I mean, is the party leadership actually obsesses about public opinion, and they constantly measure it. They try analyze it. They react to it, and yeah, they try their damnedest to shape it and to direct it. But we've also seen how it can they can be bent by public opinion. So I'm glad, Rehan, you you said that you agree too. Um, do you want to? Sp- Expand on that a bit. Yeah, and I think that's uh, one of the reasons that I want to engage in that room. And if there are some party officials, I think we all believe that they there are. And Kaiser, you talk about this too. Like you say, like I criticize China uh, in in the other room, like on Xinjiang and so many things. But I also try to hold other ideas, like you know where you know perhaps China did good things, right? Like, and for me, when I came in, one thing I really hoped. If there are moderate voices within the party, and I'm sure there are, they see that how flatly wrong this is. 
right. right? Like, and they see, like, I mean, my story is a powerful example. My brother doesn't need some re-education. He came to the U.S. And if anything, this is, I try to share, like, you know, some individual stories, like this I Love Xinjiang campaign that he did right before coming to the U.S., to say, like, you know, he tried to be the bridge. And if you're taking away this person, who else are you not taking? How many people are there? And when you ask these questions, anybody can make the calculation. So by doing this and by engaging in this forum, and there would be so many other forums that I would criticize China a lot. But in that moment and in the past few days, I've been trying to send a message to China. And especially party officials or, you know, friends of party officials listening, like you're doing this so wrong and see like how even Han people are appalled by this and they're on our side. And maybe it's the time for you to reevaluate. And it's very difficult for the Chinese government, obviously, to say that I made a mistake. I don't know how they are going to get out of it, but I wanted them to have the opportunity to re-examine and rethink. And I do think in, in that's why the Chinese public opinion matters the most. Um, Fantastic. Uh, yeah. And on that theme, Rehan, can you talk about what approaches you'd recommend for engaging with you know, the Chinese public, but the Chinese public not as something on the other end of the media or, you know, in the abstract, but as Chinese friends and family, individual Han people who still react defensively or take offense at uh, criticism of China, uh, uh, discussions about the camps or, or, you know, people who deny what is happening. How, how do you talk to them? There is a wonderful website uh, that a, a Han friend uh, did. And actually, this is somebody, absolutely stranger, who reached out to me. And they made a website called Let's Talk About Xinjiang, like how to talk to your friends who are in absolutely in like denialism. Um, so I thought that was a good way to go. But for me, it seems like my observation over the past few days, I think there's a lot of shame within the Han community, that this is what the, the government is doing to the other ethnic groups. And nobody wants to be associated with the government that has been accused of committing genocide. So I think it's far more powerful from what I'm hearing is that it was the individual story, when they hear it, they realize that, oh my gosh, like this is absolutely morally ethically in any way wrong so perhaps just bring up the fact that like look at my brother right like everything he's done is i mean the definition of he the chinese government could have been even like use him as an example he's the poster child of china opening its uh, door to, to Western economy and also like, you know, engaging with ethnic minorities. Perhaps maybe this is the kind of discussion we should have and keep repeating the message. I haven't found the perfect ways, but uh, in Clubhouse, I thought maybe we cracked something. <laughs> I, I can't agree with you more. I think, I mean, for me personally, the thing that really just made it so real to me was just hearing my friend Nuri Turkel talk about the experience of his parents and uh, just watching that happen. It was, yeah, for sure. That was, that is the, the right strategy. Uh, 
I, I wish we could go on for a long time. Uh, I had a lot more questions for you that I would have loved to get to. But Rehan, Mui, and, and Al, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about that brief and, and bright moment. And thanks even more, I think, for actually, you know, for doing what you did and for doing it so well. Uh, let's move on to recommendations for this segment for the show. But um, first, I want to do a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like what we're doing with the shows in the network, great shows like Strangers in China, which is now back in its second season, and the China in Africa podcast and Tech Buzz China, and of course, New Voices, then the best thing you can do is to subscribe, not just to those shows, rate and review and yada yada, but more importantly, subscribe to SubChina Access, our daily newsletter edited by the one, the only, Jeremy Goldcorn. And uh, two quick things. First, Jeremy and I will be hosting weekly live chats on Clubhouse. I think we're going to be doing it on Friday nights or uh, Saturday morning if you're in East Asia under the Inside Asia Club on Clubhouse. So join that club, Inside Asia. You will get alerts about all of our upcoming chats. We will occasionally have special guests. And I hope to be pulling many of our friends and our listeners up on stage to comment and to ask questions about what's happening in China including about what's happening in Xinjiang, of course. Uh, also, two new podcasts to tell you about. The first is China Stories, which are audio versions of some of the best English language writing on China from outlets from Sixth Tone, Caixin Global, The Wire China, The World of Chinese, and, of course, from Sub China. And we are, are going to be adding new outlets all the time. If you like listening to long-form journalism, and uh, I know I do, uh, then this is for you. We have got really, really talented readers uh, who will not just not butcher the Chinese, but will actually get the goddamn tones right. Uh, speaking of getting the tones right, our second new podcast is the wonderful You Can Learn Chinese podcast uh, made by John Pasden and Jared Turner, who are two great people who are really dedicated to helping you learn Chinese. Uh, this is not an instructional podcast. It's not an actual language learning podcast. It's about how to learn and what tools are out there, what approaches and techniques are most effective. And uh, each week they interview somebody who has learned Chinese and they, they tell about what's worked for them and the challenges that they face. Jeremy actually has been a guest on it and so have I for that portion of the show. We love this podcast and we are quite sure that you will too. So on to recommendations. Jeremy, you kick us off. That is our tradition. Sure. So I, I think I recommended, I try to recommend it on a podcast that ended up getting canned, but the science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson's book Red Moon, which if you like kind of dystopian science fiction, moon colonization, you know, uh, uh, is very good. But if I did recommend it before, he just has a new one, which I've just cracked open called The Ministry for the Future, uh, which is... Uh, yeah, I, I've recommended it on the show oh, as well. Oh, you have? Okay. So I keep on, you I keep on following you and <laughs> about with shows that uh, I, I'm not on with you. Well, yeah, okay. So just listen to Kaiser's previous recommendations and forget forget everything. <laughs> no, no it's a great book. He's already read all Kim the Kim Stanley Robinson's. <laughs> that I read. You know, things are slow Sorry, here man. in Nashville. <laughs> Rehan, what do you have for us? Oh, boy. Uh, I'm going to recommend a show. <laughs> okay. I think we've discussed uh, a lot heavy subjects. Um, so I'm going to recommend a show that I, I binged watched over a weekend, uh, The Queen's Gambit. Um, oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> It's a great show that truly celebrates, um, you know, female power and femininity at the same time. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, Yeah, very very wonderful message. 
it, it got it got me playing a lot of chess with my son. <laughs> for sure. that, that was a lot of fun. Great, great recommendation. The Queen's Gambit. Mui, what do you have for us? Okay, so when I decided what to recommend before coming to the podcast, I was like, okay, after I say it, no one's gonna care. No, probably people don't know too much about it. But now after knowing that uh, our guests, the other two guests, also have experience living in Wuhan. I think it will be the this will be the most perfect uh, recommendations. So I recently found this uh, instant hot dry noodle that is so close that tastes so What? close to the hot dry noodle that I used to buy just downstairs. Uh, oh my god! Yes, and I tried on. Yes, I'm gonna tell you now. I know you're gonna all get <laughs> okay. What's it called? <laughs> Because that's how I felt when I discovered it. So um, the brand is uh, called Xiangnian. Um, I found it on Yummy Buy. I think it's a popular, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, um, yeah, you all know Yummy Buy. Yeah, so you just like go to Yummy Buy and search Xiangnian, Re Gan Mian, you'll find it. They actually have the pickles in it. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I ordered, yeah, <laughs> it's really amazing. I have like 12 packages stocked at home right wow. now. Oh my God. I had 10, so you beat me. Oh my God. So you, oh, you, you, you've you already discovered this too, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope she didn't take okay. your recommendation, though. That's amazing that you guys are all from Wuhan or all have like. A <laughs> my mom, my mom was born there. My mom was born in Hankong. Wow! Oh wow! Yeah. Oh, wow. We should do an episode on Wuhan then. <laughs> <laughs> We have, but just on one unfortunate aspect of it. Okay, L, what do you have for us? So I wanted to recommend a movie called No, which is a Chilean movie made in 2012. And it's about the first time there's a referendum uh, in Chile uh, where you know people actually came out to vote and they voted a dictator out of the office. And one important message this movie kind of told me, and I think is valuable, is that the director of the No campaign, you know, decided to not use an approach that's critical that criticizes what you know the current dictator is doing or the or the current government is doing because. That uh, critical perspective only creates fear among the people, so they're not as willing to come out and vote. So instead, he created a campaign that's all music videos. People are very happy when they voted no, and then that actually brought everybody out to vote. So maybe you know, there's a lesson here. A, yeah, yeah, I think it's a very, very powerful movie and also very eye-opening. So I wanted to recommend to everyone, especially you know people who care about、uh, politics and democracy in China. I think. You know, it's a it's a film worth watching. Fantastic! I am going to recommend a book,、uh, Tuping Chen's really wonderful short story collection, "Land of Big Numbers." Tuping was for many years、um, a Beijing-based correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. I think a lot of you probably know her. As great as she was as a reporter, clearly she's found her true calling, which is in writing fiction.、Um, these are wonderful stories, all set in China, masterfully told. Uh, if you hurry and get the book now, you can finish it in time for next week's Cynical Podcast, on which the author herself, Tuping, is going to be our guest, and we'll be talking all about her fantastic short story collection, "Land of Big Numbers." Get it.、Um, thank you once more, Rehan, Mui, and El.、Uh, I guess I'll see you guys on Clubhouse, right? Yes, you、yep. will. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. <laughs> see you tonight. And as always, Jeremy, I will see you on Clubhouse actually tomorrow night, right? Thank you very much, Rehan, Mu, and Louis. Thanks, Kaiser. Yeah, you will see me, I guess, on Clubhouse. <laughs> Fantastic! I look forward to it.、Uh, you know, this is a game changer. I think. Thanks so much.
The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Gua and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News and make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.